You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. And this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. Well, guys, I pulled a total lynch yesterday, and I was as horizontal as I could be for as long as I could be, given everything that was going on, chores and whatnot. What a sports day. So much to talk about because the implications, both just for fans but also economically, were massive, given everything that was going on in the world. we got to start, got to, got to, got to start with lefty. Nicholson from 16 feet. This ball going to work just a little bit from left to right as that works down the slope. Left to right, up to the cup, and that stops six inches away. But Phil Mickelson's going to tap in for a par. He is going to shoot a one over 73 in the final round. But Phil Mickelson creates and sets professional golf history, the oldest to win a major championship. Phil Mickelson embraces his brother Tim. Phil Mickelson is the champion of the 103rd PGA Championship. What about it was today? Well, about indeed, and it was funny, if you missed it last week, we caught up with Seth Waugh, who is the CEO of the PGA, and it was, he he promised a a good tournament. I'm not sure anybody, I think it was 250 to 1, um, that Phil Mickelson was going to win this tournament. Uh, Lynchy, what did you make of it? I mean, what a remarkable storyline. You know, I think everyone was waiting for the wheels to fall off. Yeah. He can't sustain this. Uh, Tom Watson had a great run at the British Open when he was, uh, you know, in his, his twilight years, too, and you just knew it was going to happen. And he said, oh, he's going against Kepka. Kepka's a machine, even though he had knee surgery. And this was just, Phil was like, take that, take that, take that, take that. You know, I'm still standing. I think of Elton John. I'm still standing. And that scene on 18, after he had a second shot into the green, where the mob just swallowed him up, yeah. reminded me of Arnold Palmer, you know, at the British Open. And all of a sudden, Arnold just emerges from the crowd. And this was something I think we all needed. Uh, this was really, you know, it just showed that, you know, we have turned the corner on this pandemic. Um, and, 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 boy, it was golf. Golf started us off, and golf uh, has brought us to where we are right now. Yeah, really sustained us throughout this. Lefty's army yeah. in some, <laughs> yeah. to some extent. I mean, it was really something to watch. And, you know, and Michael Barr, I, I, Lynchy brings up a really good point because if you were watching it, I mean, if you were watching it with a very close eye, you could see that it was a little bit different in some of the kind of pandemonium from a fan perspective was owing to the fact that there were no grandstands, and so it was a little bit of a free-for-all, and yet it did feel somewhat normal in terms of the enthusiasm, in terms of, candidly, people all wedged in together, not a lot of masks to be seen, and some really high-quality golf. It it was really something to watch. They were so wedged in, I think uh, Brooks Kepka was mad. Because, you know, he's recovering from, you know, his knee and everything. So he said uh, some people dinged him in the knee. And uh, and he let out a couple of expletives during the, the press conference. And, and I can't blame him. It's like, you know, look, I, I'm trying to recover. And, you know, don't whack me in the knee or something. But but it, it really was cool because uh, you talked about the bets. Somebody, DraftKings, had to pay out $300,000 because somebody bet a thousand dollars at three hundred to one odds that Mickelson was going to win, and I'll be—he won. It wasn't you. 
Yeah, no, I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> like, where's Barr? Huh, he's, he's in Bermuda shorts somewhere. Speaking of expletives, he said some really interesting things on his that message saying he was going to be in Tahiti. What anyway, no, and the um, horse you rode in on. What is this? <laughs> so let's talk about the numbers. So two point one six yep. million dollars, uh, the richest yep. PGA Tour purse of his career, and. You know, it was interesting. I, I read this piece, and I think you did too, Lindsay, this morning on, on yep. Sportico, that kind of broke down uh, Mickelson's career earnings. He's been very savvy as an endorser, as a pitch man in many ways. And it made some interesting comparisons between him and Arnold Palmer, I believe, in terms <laughs> of how savvy they were and in terms of how each of them has essentially played in both the the golf and, to some extent, the commercial shadow of a generational player, Jack Nichol- Jack Nicholas, obviously, and and Tiger Woods in Mickelson's case. But listen, Mickelson, he's done all right for himself. <laughs> he averages forty million dollars a year in endorsements off the course. So if he didn't yeah. make a penny. And win a tournament, he would make $40 million. Career-wise, only Tiger Woods has won more money than Phil Mickelson, who is approaching $100 million. He's at about $95 million right now. And he's only had two wins in the last eight years. But he's made up of about $800 million of total of his sponsors. The big ones, obviously, you can see them. He wears a Rolex. He has KPMG on his hat. He has Workday on his shirt. And there are dozens of others. And they're good, you know, it's the same type, as you said. That's a great article because it parallels the endorsements and investments that Arnold Palmer had when he was breaking in as well. Yeah, I mean, Bart, this is a guy who has been ranked among the world's 25 highest paid athletes for most of the last 20 years. I'm not sure if anybody who's not paying close attention would have guessed that, but it's a reminder. And and we talked a little bit about this with with Seth, or certainly was implicit Seth Waugh. You know, this is a game where the economics continue to be very good. The sponsors are... Um, still showing up in a very big way. It's an affluent game. Yes, it's trying to expand um, to you know a broader demographics and things like that. But the money is still in golf, and, and that's why golfers, even if they're not um, you know winning a tournament every other week or every other month, are, are able to to make more than a good living. Oh yeah, and remember now, remember those one on ones with Mickelson and Tiger Woods. Oh yeah, and, and one of the main reasons why they did it is that their names stay out there in front, which means the sponsors are saying, "Yeah, Phil Mickelson. Yeah, hey, would you like to sponsor this?" You know, I mean, it, it keeps you in there. But and by the way, was it me? Or was there a lot of pressure on a lot of golfers in this tournament? Because there was, there were a lot of prickly moments, man, with the golfers. In fact, Nicholson got mad. There was a drone that was yeah. out there. And, I mean, way out there. I could barely see it in the photograph, but he saw it, and he's like, get that thing out of here. And, yeah. and they got that thing out of here. So it was – but it, you could tell it was a high-pressure tournament. Well, interesting that you mentioned that, uh, that made-for-TV – uh, exhibition that, of course, was against Tiger Woods. The match, capital T, capital M, back in 2018, <laughs> he made nine million dollars. Mickelson did uh, for that, so that's actually the most he's ever made for a tournament. But again, this purse, uh, almost 2.2 million dollars, just for him, just for Mickelson winning. I mean, the other thing is, is it sets him 
and and Lynchy, you know the mechanics of this better than either of us do, I dare say. You know, he was going to have to get, because he had not won, he was going to have to get right. an exemption, I believe, for the next major. Now that's off the table. Um, I mean, we could see a, a, a mickelson assance here. <laughs> well, he now has an exemption to all these for five right. years. He actually he actually accepted uh, uh, an invitation to the U.S. Open, and he really didn't want it. He just did not want to have it handed to him, but he accepted yeah. it last week. Now that's as you said, it's off the table. So he's he's around for five more years in all these major tournaments, and you know he's going to have he's wildly popular, as you saw, yeah. wildly popular, and his popularity is just going to going to soar right now, especially with Tiger on the sidelines. Yeah, it's uh, it's really going to be something to watch. It is, I, I dare say, a storyline that golf really needed because we've talked about this on the show before, and 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 Bar, I believe you brought it up in our conversation with Seth Wah. You know, there is golf with Tiger and golf without Tiger. You know, none of these guys, with all due respect to to Brooks and to Rory and. Jordan and, and the rest of those guys, none of them have sort of just captured the imagination in the same way. You know, Mickelson has endeared himself in part because of something you said earlier uh, in the show to to fans. He's endeared himself to fans, Lynchy, because he has candidly like choked a few times. <laughs> He's come up yeah. short, you know, in the Masters and, and other majors, and he was just a machine yesterday. And that's the it's a storyline that people like. It's a storyline that candidly is very sellable. There are a lot of economics uh, underneath that. So I, I can only speak for myself, but I'm guessing you guys might have been the same way. As I was watching the PGA come to its conclusion down in South Carolina, I was flipping back and forth to uh, the NBA playoffs because they are very much underway. The playoffs, full stop, play in. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, that concluded last week. Some great games uh, happening, and you know, now we're knee deep in it. The game that I was most focused on, not surprisingly, given uh, that most listeners know where I come from, was uh, my two cities, the Atlanta and New York, <laughs> squaring off at Madison Square Garden. And I'm not sure anybody would have predicted this a couple months ago. Uh, a that these teams would be playing each other, the, the Hawks and the Knicks, but also that Lynchy the capacity the highest capacity for any playoff game at least so far madison square garden fifteen thousand fans there uh last night to by the way see the hawks defeat them <laughs> at the buzzer by trey young at by the, the way, buzzer trey young an unbelievable <laughs> shot with 0.9 left but anyway maybe we'll deal with that in a second but fifteen thousand. i mean that's a lot of folks yeah, and and over in Brooklyn on Saturday night, the Nets had close to fifteen thousand. Yeah. They had fourteen three ninety one. So those are huge crowds. And a lot of as we move forward now, the state of Massachusetts uh, this Saturday, the 29th, is allowing one hundred percent capacity. So wow. when the Celtics and the uh, Nets play at the Garden this weekend, they'll have over eighteen thousand people at the Garden in Boston. Atlanta, by the way, when they move down there, they're cleared for one hundred percent capacity as well. So many of the teams in the East uh, that were behind uh, some of the other states in terms of uh, reopening, you know, Florida would open, California would open, Texas would open, and and uh, a lot of people up here were very unhappy because they felt that they should be reopening. It's proved to be the right decision, and now we're moving forward, and this is pretty good. And as we know, there's nothing like a full barn in Madison Square Garden when things are going well. I mean, that that building just really, it moves. It yeah. rocks. 
It liter- literally, literally. Yes. I mean, you can <laughs> feel it. You've been on the floor uh, yeah. to feel it, Lynching. Uh, I yeah. mean, Barr, it's interesting. I, I was texting with a friend last night who was at the game, and he said he's been in a, a lot of arenas, and he said he had never heard it as loud, and that's not even full capacity. Clearly some pent-up demand here in, in New York, I dare say. Pandemic is part of it, but also – been a little bit of a drought for the Knicks in, in terms of getting back. And Spike Lee was there jumping up and down in his bright orange shirt. Um, he was obviously disappointed uh, at the end as he was, he and others were shushed by, <laughs> by Trey Young. But uh, listen, fans in the stands, it, it makes all the difference. I'm glad you're not bringing up that Atlanta won. But anyway. <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> Scoreboard. That's <laughs> but, yeah, that's 70% that was in uh, at the Garden. Now, and, and the New York is talking about doing this more now. In fact, yeah. maybe even more uh, capacity for the playoff games. In fact, a lot of playoff games are thinking about that. And, and I'm wondering, by the way, I know I'm getting off course a little bit, I'm wondering if the NHL is thinking about doing something like that. By the way, congratulations, Lynchy, because the Bruins <laughs> advanced to the next round. Yes. Yep. And I'm just wondering now if a lot of the arenas are going to start thinking about, you know what? Come on in, gang. You know, we'll, you know, we got some popcorn for you and, uh, just put that mask on, and uh, you don't even have to do it if you've been vaccinated. So, you know, that's the key. Yeah, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, I just out of curiosity, especially uh, as it as the game was over and I, I saw the Hawks go up um, one one nil, as they say, uh, over in Europe. Uh, in terms of this series, I, I went over to StubHub just to see what, what tickets were like. There are some vaccinated sections, non-vaccinated sections, excuse me, um, tickets. Not cheap um, to go see uh, some playoff basketball in Madison Square Garden. Uh, not surprisingly, you're you're going to pay a minimum of you know two hundred fifty three hundred dollars per seat uh, to to go see. I mean, this is this is first round, and uh, and we'll see how it goes. I mean, the other sort of big business question that a lot of folks in the NBA are talking about is was the play-in tournament successful. We talked a little bit about this last week. Um, I think it's pretty much a resounding yes. Look, Adam Silver got lucky, to be honest, when he had arguably the two most influential players of the last two decades squaring off in a one-game play-in game game last Wednesday, LeBron James versus Steph Curry. LeBron hits a 34-foot shot after getting poked in the eye. Sort of can't make it up. Um, The Lakers go on. They lost yesterday uh, on Sunday afternoon to Chris Paul and the Suns, who were a higher seed. Uh, Steph Curry and the Warriors go out. But you look back at last week and even what you saw on Friday night with the Warriors and the Grizzlies, a very highly rated game. I mean, you're seeing some of the best, most watched games over the course of this season, over the last couple seasons. In fact, Last Wednesday's game, Lynchy, was the most watched NBA NBA game on ESPN since the 2019 Western Conference Finals. Uh, that was when the Warriors and the Trailblazers played. Um, 5.62 million viewers on ESPN. And what's interesting is the game peaked, uh, this is according to something in The Athletic, with 6.15 million viewers from 12.30 to 1 a.m. Eastern Time, <laughs> which does make you think, if they hadn't tipped off this game at, you know, 
flipping 9 yeah, p.m. Midnight. Um, <laughs> and actually played it in East Coast primetime. Sorry, I know. I'm an East Coast guy. Um, <laughs> there would have been even more people watching it because I don't care if you're a – you know, it goes well beyond – Warriors and Lakers fans who are interested in the LeBron uh, Steph showdown. Yeah, I'm one of them. I, I checked out at halftime. I could have tipped the scales on those ratings right there. Yeah. Playing was a great idea. If, at first, I was going, hmm, I'm not so sure about this. Right. But I liked it, uh, earning their way in. This new proposal that they're going to bring up that they started to talk about a couple of years ago, but a, a midseason tournament, I'm not on board with that one right now. Um, yeah. I think the All-Star break is enough in the middle of the season. The All-Star game is really a bad – I mean, it's good to see everybody out there, but it's basically a pickup game at the YMCA with the, with the over-under at around 300. Yeah, I don't really – I have to say I'm I'm not – I don't get it. I, I don't get the, the mid-season tournament. I'm not sure why you would why you would do that. I think an All-Star game is a really good – thing thing to do i mean i get why you would do it from a business perspective because you're you might have you know there's something a little little bit more at stake bar but i i don't know like i'm i'm all on board for a lot of what adam silver wants to do but that's one where i'm not quite sure i see it i remember the all-star game back in the 70s i understood it then because outside of your local basketball team you really didn't get many of the other teams unless you got the NBA game of the week or something like that whatever so when you had the all-star game then you could see all these players from all the other teams that you heard about in the news or you read about in the newspaper well now we have so many ways you can watch all of the games I'm just not so sure now if the NBA game uh, all-star game is I hate to put it this way if it's needed but would you do a tournament instead? I mean, a, a mid-season tournament seems like even more. It seems even more onerous on, on the players and sort of taxing and, and yeah, kind of I, distracting. I, I I wouldn't, and yeah. I I agree with you guys. It's, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, Adam Silver knows way more about the NBA business than I do, but I I just don't see the direction of doing it and. Uh, it is taxing on the players, and maybe if okay, if you put something on the All Star Game, put something on it like you do for uh, the old All Star Game for uh, in baseball. It's like no, okay, don't say it, Bar. Yeah, don't say I, it. I, I, <laughs> home advantage. <laughs> I know. I, don't you, say I, it. You know. It, I know. I, I Lindsay. I know you. You're like get out of here. <laughs> But I, they got to do something because it's like, why have the All Star game in the first place? Yeah. I, I agree with you. It's like it's a pickup yeah. game. Yeah. All right. Well, so you know, it, it, it is ahead. a pickup game. They, they all play. They play all the. It, it's a big deal for the city that hosts the All Star game. Yes. Uh, it's a big true. economic impact. Um, it's good for the people that live in that city because they have all these little festivals and around the around the arena yeah. uh, for the whole All Star weekend. And I think that's the uh, you know you got to weigh the pluses and the minuses of eliminating that. Yeah, <laughs> excuse me. I mean, the the interesting thing to me about the All-Star game in the NBA specifically, you know, it's a little bit of a break. You know, it, it gives you sort of a chance to, to reassess the season. I will say, I mean, this is the business guy in, in me coming out. My favorite thing about the All-Star weekend is actually the Tech Summit, <laughs> I dare say, that comes um, ahead of it. because What? It, I know. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> listen, guys, I'm a sports fan, but, you know, I'm a business journalist at heart. But listen, hear me out. Hear me out. Um, I'm here. The, the Friday before, 
you have this entire conference where the players, the owners, a lot of big companies get together and you see all the machinations that are going on behind the scenes with not just the teams, but the players and the empires that they're building. You see all the connections that are being made. I mean, this is the most dynamic league when it comes to that stuff. So I kind of like the idea of that uh, of that midseason gathering. Again, business nerd. Sorry, sorry. I, 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 right. I am who right. I am. It's, it's all um, right. I'm, 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 I'm on board with that. I like it. You explained it, and I'm on board. Uh, yeah. Okay, um, I'll go right. along. Before we, before we wrap up, let's talk a little bit about the Olympics because mm. this is something, and specifically the Tokyo Olympics, we're going to have to spend a whole other show talking about the Beijing Olympics and everything that's going on politically and down in Washington and, and elsewhere around the world. We'll save that for, for later on as we get toward 2022 and those Olympic Games, the Winter Olympic Games. The Summer Games, they were supposed to happen last summer, delayed till this summer. And you've got, Lynchy, what I can only describe as some pretty serious cognitive dissonance here because you have, on the one hand, over the last couple of days, the IOC coming out and saying, we're absolutely doing this. It's going to be safe. We've done some test events. You've got Simone Biles doing unbelievable, unprecedented, historic things on the vault, getting people excited from that perspective. And meanwhile, owing to the global pandemic, you have more than 80%, 80% of Japanese people saying, no, thank you. We do not want this yeah. to happen. You've got Masayoshi Son, you know, one of the most outspoken uh, entrepreneurs and investors uh, in that region, Japanese, obviously himself, saying, bad idea. How does this end? Well, uh, and you also have a state of emergency yeah. in Japan. And you have, six, more importantly than the, than the population, you have 6,000 Japanese doctors who are pleading with the prime minister to cancel the games. They said their hospitals are all full right now. Only, what, 3.5% of their 126 million people are vaccinated. Now, presumably, all the uh, athletes that come over will be vaccinated. So if they want to run these games and they insist on going forward, I think they're going to have to do it with no fans in the seats. Yeah. And it and it's so interesting then, Barr, to just kind of stitch all this together and, and think about what we've been talking about up until this moment in our conversation, which is fans back in the seats, the excitement of watching NBA playoffs, the excitement of all these things that are going on. You know, we're talking on a day where the mayor of New York City has just said students will be back in classroom in the fall um, in New York City public schools, you know, it's sort of it's hard to get your mind around the idea that this summer when we will have seen all of these fans back in the stands we're going to go back to what's essentially what we saw last summer in the NBA bubble for the Olympics well let me give you a, a couple of figures uh, 70% and Bill de Blasio said this mayor of New York said this today about 70% of New York has been vaccinated yeah. you know how many people in Japan have been vaccinated, 2%. Yeah. Now, how in the world are you going to hold these Olympics? I'm sorry, I sound a little bit like Stephen A. Smith. But <laughs> uh, how in the world are you going to hold these Olympics uh, with 2% of the population vaccinated? Yeah. And now you're on this thing, okay, let's hurry up and get all the elderly people vaccinated before the Olympics. How are you going to do with this? This this is going to be hard. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, we're all diehard sports fans. I'd love to see the Olympics. But 
this is almost an impossible set of circumstances here. But, you know, officials want to carry on. I, I just don't see how this is going to get done. Well, the economics of the Olympics obviously totally change, and oh. the incentives to host the Olympics diminish dramatically. Uh, you know, having having lived through on-site the Olympic Games in Atlanta back in 1996, I, I know for certain how much of the Olympics are about people coming to the city, showcasing the city, spending money, hotels, restaurants, all of that um, that happens. Essentially, none of that is going to be happening by all accounts in Japan. Um, you know, obviously, people will watch it on TV. And so there's a broadcast revenue piece of this, Lynchy. But I, I just it it feels like something is breaking here. And you do, you know, you feel for these athletes in many ways because this only happens every yep. um, four years, obviously, for a Simone Biles, who I mentioned earlier. If these Olympics don't happen, if it's, and certainly if they're canceled and not delayed again uh, or postponed again, I, I, I have to think that we won't see Simone Biles in the Olympics again, um, which is really sad to say. You think of a Katie Ledecky and, you know, some of the very well-known American athletes who will not be able to participate in the Olympics again. But something is fundamentally broken here, and, and, and I'm not sure where it ends up. Well, I mean, follow the lesson of the American uh, sports last year. Uh, we had a bubble for basketball and a bubble for hockey, and it worked. We had limited, if, if not zero, attendance for the National Football League, yeah. and it worked. We did the same thing with baseball. And if you have to have the Olympics without fans, so I think that you should not rob these kids of their, their one opportunity. Just think it's not so much winning a medal or just competing. If, yeah. if you're very successful and you're high profile, you know, you're a mini uh, Phil Mickelson, you know, just a, a walking uh, endorsement package. And this opportunity is not, it's not coming again. Yeah, that's a good point. Very good point. Man, I was thinking, Lynchy, maybe we should get up a one-on-one -on -one match, man, and maybe we can get sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> this, this match brought to you by Cheetos. <laughs> this is the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. Oh, physicians on call when Byron Lynch go one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> yep, so going out all over the place. <laughs> all over the place. I'm Mike Lynch, and you can follow me at Lynchy at WCBB. I'm just wondering one-on-one -on -one at what? I'm Jason Kelly. Find me at Jason Kelly News. We're here each and every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday exploring the world of money and sports. Join us again at the end of the week. We're going to catch up with Simon Belsham. He is the president of Equinox Feet, hands, feet, hands. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. See, you'll get the commercial. Uh, on Bloomberg Radio, around the world, and online, wherever you get your podcasts.